0: Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here for the New Books Network on the History and Native American Studies channels. Today, our guest is Jacob F. Lee, Assistant Professor of History at Penn State University. He just published his book earlier this year, Masters of the Middle Waters, Indian Nations, and Colonial Ambitions along the Mississippi. Welcome. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. We're going to uh, dive straight into the questions today. What prompted you to research and study the borderlands of the central Mississippian River Valley between the fall of Cahokia and the rise of the United States, where rivers join disparate and distant groups of Indians and Europeans, quoting you?
1: Most of my research is driven by things that surprise me, things that I don't know, things that I come across in the sources and think, oh, I want to know more about this. And then I go looking for the answer and I can't find it. And so, you know, in the secondary literature. And so then I end up diving in and trying to find out what the answer is. Um, And that's really how this project got started. Also, um, I grew up in Kentucky where George Rogers Clark is kind of a, uh, you know, he's a a historical hero of the state in a lot of ways. He founded Louisville and, um, you know, has something of a presence. And so when I got interested in early America, one thing that I read quite a bit was about the revolution in the American West. And George Rogers Clark was part of the story. And as I was reading about his campaigns into the Illinois country in 1778, I realized that although he was ostensibly fighting British colonists, he was actually mostly interacting with French fur traders and farmers. And then across the Mississippi River, he was engaging with Spanish officials. And so this did not really make sense to me in terms of my kind of traditional understanding of what early America looked like. And so I really wanted to know more about who those people were, how they got there, and how they fit into this story that, you know, people now talk about as being part of vast early America. Um, And that also kind of intersected, you know, this thing that surprised me about the Illinois country, then intersected with a longer standing interest in the history of empires and colonialism and also native history. And so I got, as I dug deeper, it became clear that this was a place where I could think a lot about different kinds of empires, different forms of colonialism, the way native peoples interacted with these different models of colonialism. And so I ended up going both uh, back in time and forward in time from that moment in the 1770s to tell this much longer history about the mid
0: So you argue towards the, the beginning of the book that Native Americans, quote, divided their worlds into three realms, the household, the community, and the outside world. When navigating the boundary between the community, the second realm, and the outside world, the third realm, all relied on notions of familial and fictive kinship. What role did rituals play in building connections with valuable allies beyond the boundaries of the community and, in effect, to expand those borders?
1: So rituals are absolutely key in thinking about how people navigated these social boundaries. And the most important ritual in the Mid-Continent in you know, really starting in the 1300s and continuing up well into the colonial era is the Calumet ceremony. And the Calumet is a pipe with a long decorated stem, in different groups different, uh, decorated in lots of different ways. Um, and this pipe is at the center of a long ceremony that converts foreigners or strangers into adopted kin. And we know quite a bit about the Calumet ceremony because it um, it was widespread, for one, and it's how Native peoples greeted Europeans regularly, and so it shows up in those early colonial records. But the other thing is that it was long-lasting, and so anthropologists in the late 1800s into the early 1900s recorded a wealth of information about the Calumet ceremony in a couple of different Indian nations on the Great Plains. And we can see how this plays out if we look at um, the example of Jacques Marquette, the French Jesuit who traveled down the Mississippi River in 1673. Uh, He arrives at the French, I'm sorry, he arrives at the Illinois village of Peoria um, in that summer and is greeted by men carrying calumets. And that they and they then invite him to participate in this ceremony, and so he sits there and watches as Illinois men dance, and they might battle, and they spoke about their exploits in warfare, and then they exchange gifts. And so Marquette doesn't—he describes this in his account, but he doesn't really seem to understand the full importance of it. You know, he talks about how it's part of building alliances and those things, but he doesn't really understand that it's also about adoption and it—it's creating kinship ties. But that's exactly what is happening, and so. By creating those kinship ties, the Calumet ceremony creates uh, fictive ties between uh, a community and a stranger and brings that stranger across the boundary between the community and the outside world. And so I think that ceremonies like the Calumet are a key part of how uh, people navigate those boundaries between their community and the outside world and how they build relations across those boundaries. And I also want to note though, that I don't think it's just Native Americans who do this. Um, something else that I, um, that I see as being akin to this kind of ritual is baptism. Um, and so I think that when Jesuits and other missionaries are baptizing, um, Native Americans, one thing that they're doing is creating fictive kinship ties between themselves and Native Americans. You know, it, the language of that is also about creating, um, you know, about turning people into the children of God, right? And so there's this there's this notion of fictive kinship created by Catholicism and other forms of Christianity. And so I think that whether we're talking about the Calumet or whether we're talking about baptism, these rituals do play a key part in creating fictive kin ties.
0: Please briefly trace Mississippian expansion, fractures, conflicts, trade, and migrations, as well as the the rise of the um, Oniotos during the fourteen hundreds and fifteen hundreds. You've already discussed discussed the uh, significance of the Comet Ceremony, but if you can elaborate that on that a bit as well, that would be great.
1: Sure. Um, so the the Mississippian Oneota story, as as you suggest, you know, it's a really complicated one. It takes place over the course of several centuries, but I'll I'll sketch it I'll sketch it in kind of its broad outlines. Um and so we'll start with Mississippians. They're um those societies developed in the mid-continent continent starting around 1050 AD with the emergence of Cahokia, uh, which is the largest of these Mississippian chiefdoms and the largest city north of Mexico. Um until the mid 1700s. And Cahokia is one part of a much larger Mississippian world that stretched across the American South into the Mississippi Valley, west into present day Oklahoma, and then north up to uh, places as far up as Wisconsin. And there are a few things that kind of define Mississippian society. One is that they're chiefdoms, meaning that they're hierarchical and they're ruled by hereditary chiefs. They built large platform mounds, um, and we can see those across their uh, territory. Uh, they also depended on corn agriculture, and they all of these uh, different Mississippian societies share a lot of commonalities in terms of their cosmology and their iconography. And so Cahokia was the largest of these, and it was situated in um, present-day Illinois, just across the Mississippi River from St. Louis. And at its height, its population was probably about 20,000 people, uh, although archaeologists have a variety of estimates ranging from as low as 6,000 to as many as 40,000 people, if you include its suburbs. But from this center um, at Cahokia, the Mississippian influence spreads across the Midwest. And so immigrants from Cahokia uh, move out from from that metropole, into other parts of the Midwest and they spread Mississippian ideas and Mississippian culture as they go. And one place that that happens is the is the Illinois River Valley um, And so immigrants from Cahokia moved up the Illinois River and they encountered existing communities of people who adopt Mississippian traits. They start building mounds, they start relying more heavily on corn agriculture and they start to use this Mississippian iconography and it's seeming also to adopt that mississippian worldview and so by you know 1100 into the uh, 12th century there is a lot of mississippian influence in the midwest but then there is a century of drought that starts also around 1150 and this has a devastating effect on mississippian societies and so uh, crops fail the people of cahokia start going hungry and the elites of Cahokia, including the chief, seem to lose a lot of influence during that time, and so they build a wooden palisade around the center of the city, indicating, you know, social unrest. And over the next two centuries, the city's population declines, and eventually, it is nearly deserted by about 1350. But this this period of you know climate change and drought and that sort of thing. Um, leads the violence and conflict through a lot of the Mississippian uh, communities of the Midwest. And this also creates an opportunity for peoples from farther north, the Oneota peoples, who move from the upper Great Lakes into the Midwest as Mississippian influence wanes. And Oneotas are less hierarchical, tend to be less hierarchical than Mississippians, and they also don't build the big mounds that had been key to the ceremonial centers at places like Cahokia. Um, but they do uh, move into a territory where Mississippians had been present. Sometimes they form alliances with them. Sometimes they drive them out of the region. And by the mid-1300s, Oneota peoples had really pretty quickly spread from places as far away as present-day Michigan to what is currently Kansas, and then you know a pretty wide geographic distance Uh, through the upper Midwest, um, south into, um, you know, southern Illinois. And one thing that happens during this is the development of rituals and ceremonies of how to interact with new people, because warfare is part of the story. But a lot of what happens as Oneota people spread across the Midwest into the Great Plains is they start interacting with new people. They start interacting with uh, people who don't speak the same language, people who have different culture, people who have different political organizations. And the Calumet ceremony becomes the most important way of building relationships across those boundaries. And the Calumet ceremony originates during the last half of the 1200s on the Great Plains among Caddoan peoples, and that happens right as Oneota peoples move onto the Plains. And so it seems like those two things are linked. and then it enters into Oneota trade networks and the trade networks that they have with other peoples. And so by the time that uh, a European colonists show up, you know, in the 1600s, mostly in the Midwest, um, around the 1600s, the native peoples have been using the Calumet for, you know, two, three, four hundred years by that point as a way of building those relationships. And so when they are trying to forge new relationships with Europeans, they pull out the Calumet. It's a well-established way of building those ties. And so they fall back on that kind of, um, on that practice.
0: If you can, please also trace the movement of Illinois peoples from the Lake Erie region into the Mississippi Valley until the 1670s and 1680s, possibly addressing addressing their control of trade routes, cap, the captive slave trade, again the climate ceremony and the so-called illinois alliance so one thing
1: that i want to bring out in the book is kind of the the waves of attempts to take control over part or all of the um, of this region uh, you know this mid continent region of north america and so you know that as we talked about you know, there's the Mississippian influence, there's the Oneota influence. And then in the early 1600s, Illinois peoples move into the region as well. And so they're, they're another group that is competing for resources and power and influence and wealth. And it seems that Illinois peoples probably moved from somewhere south of Lake Erie around, you know, the turn of the 17th century. Um, archaeologists have have had a number of ideas about where Illinois people originated, but that seems to be the best guess at the moment that's somewhere south of Lake Erie, but that's largely based as, um, as I suspect many of your listeners will know as, as like a lot of archaeologists, archaeologist archaeologist uh, identification is on ceramics. Um, and, but the other part of the story that's important is to um, think about um, the stories that native Americans tell about their, their origins and their histories. And so a closely related group with the Illinois, um, are the Miami Indians and Miami's say, uh, and in the early 1800s, they told, um, they, they told this story that, um, which is one group of Illinois that they broke off with. They broke off from the Miami's. And this is probably something also that happens around 1600. And then, um, the Illinois moved west after this split. But regardless of exactly how that story played out, by the early 1600s, um, Illinois peoples do move into the Mississippi Valley. They begin to interact with the Oneyoto peoples, sometimes peacefully, sometimes not. And over the course of, uh, you know, about 30 or 40 years, they established this extensive trade network that expands, or that stretches from the Western Great Lakes south into the Arkansas River Valley. And... Um, and so I think that what happens with Illinois is in some ways similar to what happens with the Oneota peoples, which is that it's kind of a combination of alliance building and warfare. And I think it depends on, uh, in a lot of ways on what the goal is. And so Illinois peoples want to really, um, they really focus on controlling, um, parts of the river systems of the Midwest that give them control over trade and travel. And so there are a lot of river confluences where they set up towns. There are also river crossings uh, where they uh, establish uh, towns. And this gives them an ability to control movement across the region. And so that's part of the story. And so there is evidence of violence as Illinois peoples drive other Groups mostly Oneota groups out of those places, but then they start to build alliances, and so they build alliances with a group of um, Oneotas in present day Missouri, the Missouri Indians. They build uh, relationships with Ottawa Indians in the Western Great Lakes. They build relationships with Quapaws on the Arkansas River and Osages also in present day Missouri, and then they become a middle uh, a middleman in this expansive trade network that is mostly transporting. European goods from the Western Great Lakes that they get from Miami's and Ottawa's and others onto the Great Plains. And then from the Great Plains, they take captives and bison robes and other goods uh, to the north and to the east. And so they're really moving back and forth across this territory that they control um, throughout the central Mississippi River Valley. And so by the time uh, that French colonists show up in the 1670s, the Illinois network and the Illinois alliance is really the dominant power in that region.
0: During the 1670s and 1680s, how did the consolidated Illinois countries stave off the Iroquois? And what r- roles did corps de, bois, corps, excuse me, corps de bois, legal or otherwise, uh, play in becoming trusted allies of Illinois peoples? If possible, please also discuss uh, uh, French um, alliance practices, as well as uh, French and Illinois varieties of kinship, uh, patrilineality, marriage, and divorce.
1: So one thing that's important to note is that there's very little evidence of conflict between the Illinois and the Iroquois before the late 1670s. Um, you know, the Iroquois Wars have played a big role in the way the history of the Midwest has been narrated, and that's really based on a pretty limited story. And so, during the 1640s and 1650s, the Iroquois really their violence. Um, and warfare is really directed at a handful of groups in the Great Lakes, Hurons, um, some Ottawa's, and then, of course, you know, people like the Neutrals and the Erie's and some others like that. Um, but there's very little evidence of, of warfare in the part of uh, North America that I'm talking about. There's one documented battle in 1655 when some Iroquois warriors are going out west looking for Ottawa's, and then they are defeated, and then as this... As the source says, they found themselves among the buffaloes in the Illinois country. And um, the Illinois give them a very bad defeat. And it seems like the Illinois aren't really involved in most of the Iroquois wars in the middle part of the 17th century. But that starts to change in the late 1670s and especially after 1680 when LaSalle travels to the Illinois country to set up trading posts. Um, LaSalle had already established trading posts on Lake Erie and he'd had pretty good relations with the Iroquois, especially the Senecas who are the westernmost of the five nations. But before he leaves for the Illinois country, LaSalle goes to the Senecas and he says, Hey, I'm going to go to the Illinois country. I'm going to go set up some trading posts and things like this is going to be beneficial to you. But the Senecas know that this is not going to be beneficial to them. Um, <laughs> and so, um, in 1680. The Iroquois really start launching substantial raids into the Illinois country. There, were, there was one a couple years before that, but then once LaSalle decides that he's going to move west and start really trading with the Illinois, that's when the Iroquois, and particularly the Senecas, get invested in waging war against the Illinois. And um, in 1680, there's a really devastating attack on uh, a group of Illinois people where the, uh, the French accounts of that. Uh, attack say the Il- that the Iroquois killed or captured a total of about 700 women and children. Um, there's some evidence that indicates those were actually that most of them were actually captives, um, and um, you know that that's an indication. I think also of the trade that the you know, Illinois are carrying on. But either way, you know this is a really substantial defeat for the Illinois. Um, but then what the Illinois do is they say, well, we have all of these allies. Um, and we are going to call on them to wage war against the Iroquois. And so they get Miamis involved. They get um, Ottawa's involved. And so during the 1680s and 1690s, Illinois warriors in concert with their allies and in concert with the French wage devastating campaigns against Iroquois. And there are reports in the French archives of you know these um, campaigns taking place over the course of several years, and in 1694, French official says that over the previous seven years, that the Illinois had killed or captured about 450 Iroquois men and women, and that leads eventually to the 1701 Great Peace of Montreal, uh, which led to at least kind of a, a begrudging peace between nations throughout the Great Lakes and the, the Iroquois, um, and so. That's how, like, that's the effect of the alliance. But I think we also should talk some about how this alliance operates. Um, Because one of the keys to the alliance between French colonists and Illinois people is marriage. And um, often that's based on the fur trade, uh, or it grows out of the fur trade, I should say. And so French traders who came to the Illinois country with LaSalle marry Illinois women. And this was something that both uh, Illinois women, or at least their families, because these marriages are arranged usually. Um, but the women or their families saw these as beneficial because it gave them access to goods, it gave them access to resources, and the traders saw it as beneficial because it gave them access to beaver pelts and other furs. And marriage is really an essential part of alliance building, um, even more so than fictive kinship ties. Um, I really think that marriage is a, is an essential part of this, and it's it's in large part because those are uh, relationships that really create um, you know, long-lasting personal relationships, and also they create obligations for everybody involved. And so as these French traders are intermarrying with the Illinois nation, they are creating obligations between themselves and the nation as well, and vice versa. And those marriage practices, I think, were facilitated by the fact that the French and the Illinois had pretty similar ideas of how courtship and marriage should work. Um, both used arranged marriages. Both understood these marriages as alliances between two families. But there are also some, st- some substantial differences. And this was, these differences were less, less important for the fur traders as they, than they were for the Jesuits who were also operating in the, the Illinois country around this time. And so, one difference is that by the late 1600s, Illinois people practice polygamy, um, especially sororal polygamy, and that's when a man marries a woman and her sisters. And this, of course, is, is an affront to Jesuit ideas of you know morality and proper families and all kinds of stuff. Um, less of a problem for the French fur traders, who are mostly lapsed Catholics and mostly interested in money and not in you know maintaining some kind of uh, Jesuit idea about. Uh, propriety, um, mm-hmm. and then the other thing—the other thing that uh, was a big difference—is that Illinois women could divorce their husbands if they decided that they were tired of being married to a, a guy for whatever reason, and that, of course, is not an option in early modern France. Uh, early modern France, um, and so the um, the these, these differences, as I said, aren't really problems for fur traders, but it does become a problem for um, for Catholic missionaries. And Catholic missionaries really want to try to stop both polygamy and divorce in Illinois society. Um, but I also want to think, I think it's important to think about how French colonists can are thinking about race and intermarriage at this time period, because really what they are uh, basing their ideas, at least what French officials are basing their ideas of intermarriage on, is a French concept called misalliance, which is which grows out of early modern french thinking about marriages between aristocrats and non-aristocrats and um french officials and you know french elites think that virtue physical characteristics and other things are passed from parents to children through the blood and so they're very concerned about who is marrying who but they also believe that mothers pass the father's traits to their children, right? That the mother's traits don't pass down, like the father, even though the the women are carrying, um, carrying children. Um, they think that it's the father's traits who travel to the children through the blood. Um, and so they're not as much worried about marriages between noblemen and women of lower status than they are between, um, Men of lower status and noble women, and so this is something that gives French colonists a um, a motivation, or at least a you know an approval of intermarrying with Indian women, because French officials think, ah, well, these marriages will lead to children who have French characteristics and French virtues and that sort of thing. And so this will help us build our colony in North America. Um, and it's particularly desirable because there are very, very few French people who really think it's a great idea to move to Canada during this time period. And so they, they see this as being a way of expanding the number of colonists. And it doesn't really play out that way, which presents problems. But that, that's the gist of how the French are thinking about these questions.
0: How did Catholic conversion, on that note, severe the kinship ties of Illinois country? And why did France support Courte de Bois in order to realize imperial ambitions in Louisiana and the mid-continent? Also, what were the ramifications of the 1716 segregation of Franco-Illinois villages? I thought that was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, so the one thing that happens... Um, throughout this project or throughout the book. And one thing that I really want to highlight is that kinship is both inclusive and exclusive. Right? Thinking about kinship as a form of social organization does not mean that everyone is connected, although that is often the case. But what it, but what it also means is that there can be strict borders between kin and non-kin. And so depending on the choices made by individuals, made by communities, made by nations, tensions can also develop within kin groups because these ties pull in lots of different ways. And that happens in the Illinois Nation in the 1690s as large numbers of Kaskaskias convert to Catholicism. Um, And so Kaskaskias are one of the main divisions of the Illinois Nation, and then there are also Peorias and, and a number of other groups. But I really want to focus on this this growing rift between Kaskaskia's and Peoria's over the issue of Catholicism, because Kaskaskia's convert in large numbers, but lots of other Illinois are not interested in making that change. And Peoria's in particular reject Catholicism. And they, you know, there's a Peoria chief who's recorded in the Jesuit relations saying, you know, Kaskaskia's can pray to the Christian God if they want to, but they're Kaskaskia's we Peorias, we will make a different choice. We don't, need to, we don't need to convert to Catholicism just because Kaskaskias do. And as a result of that conversion, the groups begin to pull apart. And at the end of the 1600s, the Kaskaskias end up moving down the Illinois River away from this joint village of most of the Illinois nation. Um, in the upper part of the Illinois Valley. And they move down to the Mississippi River, leaving the Peorias and others who are not so interested in conversion, um, well, leaving them behind. And at the lower part of the Illinois River, Kaskaskias increasingly start raising wheat, which is a crop introduced by the French. They start raising livestock, according to the advice of French missionaries. And eventually a... um, you know, a multi-ethnic community of Kaskaskia's and French colonists emerges there. But Peorias largely reject that change, both the conversion to Catholicism and the more social and economic changes that come along with it. And so they continue ties with French fur traders in the upper part of the valley, but are not so much interested in the Jesuits. But during... And so these these communities kind of develop organically, right? The French empire in this point does not have a lot of oversight of what's going on, but that changes in the teens. And two things, two major things end up happening. One is that the French empire decides that it really needs fur traders to help it expand its influence in the region. And fur traders and the French empire had had a not great relationship for most of the late 1600s, uh, because the despite the, the stereotypes of the French empire being all about trade and all about furs and that sort of thing, the French empire actually has a much more, um, we'll say, cautious relationship with the fur trade. They see it as producing a lot of dangers because fur traders are leaving the bounds of the colonies, going out into Indian country. The French feel like they're losing control of these traders. They feel like Uh, their traders are going out and starting wars between indian nations and so they see this as being a real danger in a lot of ways and so france repeatedly bans or otherwise restricts the fur trade in the great lakes during the late 1600s and the fur traders simply ignore these bans you know probably hundreds of them um maybe more stay out in the in the Great Lakes and continue to operate in Indian country. Some of them trade illegally with British colonies. Some of them sneak back into Montreal in the middle of the night and um, operate the you know kind of a uh, on on a black market of the fur trade. But then in 1715, the French Empire decides, okay, we need to really be get serious about uh, exerting control over the Midwest, over the Great Lakes, and so we're going to. Uh, basically pardon all of these illegal fur traders and try to bring them into the empire. And so they get integrated because they're knowledgeable, because they have connections, because they know the, the landscape. They know good places to farm, good places to hunt and trap and that sort of thing. And so they get reintegrated into the empire and become legitimate businessmen, landowners, militia officers, colonial officials, all kinds of stuff. And that's really a product of necessity on the part of the French empire that they say, okay, well, we have these people who know something and we will allow them to, um, you know, come back into the empire. They'll get back in our good graces and they'll help us build a colony. But the other thing that happens at the same time is that the French empire is growing increasingly, um, the French empire grows increasingly cautious also about intermarriage between French men and Indian women, because they decide that this concept of misalliance it doesn't really have the effect that um, it doesn't have the effect that they want it to, right? Because the idea is that French men marry Indian women, and then they produce uh, children who will be assets to the French Empire, but that doesn't work. And so the French Empire increasingly, and French officials increasingly, think that what is actually happening is that French men are marrying Illinois women uh, or other Indian women and are getting sucked out of the French empire into Indian country and that the French empire is losing control. And so one thing that they do is they ban intermarriage and they issue statements repeatedly about this, indicating that maybe the ban's not so effective, but they do repeatedly issue the ban. And the other thing that they do is once French soldiers and French officials move into the Illinois country at the end of the seventeen teens is that they segregate the multi ethnic community that had emerged at Kaskaskia and they and after that they really exist as two separate communities: a French Kaskaskia and then there's a, an Illinois Kaskaskia that are separated by a few miles and This story is usually told as a French initiative right that the French come in they're not happy about this community, they're not happy about intermarriage, and so they segregate the two. The two populations. But I think that Kaskaskias are also probably willing participants in this because the French empire does not have a lot of power. They don't have a lot of, rec- you know, they don't have a lot of manpower in the in the mid-continent. And so the idea that the French could show up with, you know, two dozen soldiers and say, okay, you, you know, a couple thousand Kaskaskias have to move. That doesn't seem very plausible to me. Um, but I think that what has happened is that Kaskaskias have grown increasingly tired of living next to a growing number of French farmers. Because in the middle part of the next decade, in the mid-1720s, there's an Illinois chief named Chicago who travels to France as part of a contingent of midcontinent Indians. And he meets with Louis XV and he says, hey, look, we've given the French land at Kaskaskia. That's fine. But French colonists keep coming in our territories and setting up farms, he says, in the midst of our villages. And he wants the king to enforce a strong border between French territory and Illinois territory. And so I think that part of what's going on in the 17-teens when these two communities split is not only French have the French adopting these more kind of strict ideas about race and intermarriage, but also Kaskaskia is thinking that maybe, uh, maybe living really close to the French is not a great idea. And, and this has an effect also on the alliance, though, between, the, between France and the Illinois nation. Because there are still lots of connections between individual Illinois men and Illinois women and Frenchmen, but they don't occur on the formal level of diplomatic alliance, right? As marriage operates in, in alliances, it's usually... You know, the, the leader of one group marrying the daughter of another group or marrying the sister of a leader of another group. And that does not happen between the French Empire and Indian nations in the Midwest. And that lack of relationships increasingly becomes a liability for the French Empire as the 18th century progresses.
0: Why did French patriarchal mediation and Native American patrilineality confuse fictive kinship ties with the alliance? especially during French military expansion into the 18th century Illinois country. In addition, how did the Chickasaw Wars and Seven Years' War reveal the limits of kinship networks for French imperial aims?
1: So, you know, I talked about a lot of the similarities between French and Illinois ideas about horseship, but French and Illinois have very different ideas in many ways about kinship and the obligations, uh, particularly the obligations of kin. And so French colonists counted kin along both the maternal and the paternal lines. You know, they have a bilineal um figuring of kin, you know, much like um much like Euro Americans do, you know, that they're related both to their mother's family and their father's family, but also they emphasize the paternal line, right? You know, take your father's name, that sort of thing. And French society was also patriarchal. Men were seen as being the unimpeachable authority in the household, and really they could command their relatives to do things. Illinois people, on the other hand, are patrilineal. They only count kinship along the paternal line, which is something that causes confusion for French colonists. They're not really sure how Illinois people understand who is related to who. And there's some there's some funny sources about this um, where the French are you know, expressing their confusion about the, you know, the relationships between these people that they don't understand how they're connected. Um, But it's important also to note the difference between the authority that a patriarch has in French society, and the power of uh, leaders in Illinois society, which are in many ways, um, dominated by men. And, you know, women do often serve a uh, you know a, a lesser role in Illinois society during the sixteen hundreds um, but men don 't have the power to just tell people what to do and have them follow those orders um, and Men have a lot of authority, but they have to build respect they have to rebuild they have to build influence, and that happens through skill right you display your abilities as a warrior as a hunter that sort of thing and also you build your influence through generosity this is why those fur trade connections are so important because men are able to acquire and families are able to acquire goods um through through their relatives uh, who are married into those uh trade networks and can then use that to build influence in their communities um And so French officials thought that the fictive kinship of alliance gave them ability to boss Native peoples around. And they thought, oh, well, we're allied. I'm going to tell you, hey, Illinois people, you have to go fight the Iroquois. And they were like, well, yeah, we also want to fight the Iroquois, so sure. But if if those mutual interests stop aligning, then Native peoples are not interested in um, just listening to what French officials want to do. And so these relationships are much more complicated and much less domineering than the French expect. And I'll have to say that both Patricia Galloway and Richard White have written about this. And um, if people are interested in learning more about kind of the the limits of these alliances and different understandings about gender and kinship, I really recommend Patricia Galloway's article in the book Powhatan's Mantle. Um, but the, the gist of it, again, is that French officials think they can just tell Native peoples what to do um, and that they – can say they can basically give orders and native people are supposed to follow, um, but native peoples listen to the French. You know they meet with them, they take their advice, and then they do what they think is best. Sometimes they uh, take a course of action that correlates with what French officials want, and a lot of times they don't. And this really becomes apparent in the case of the, the Chickasaw Wars that start in the 1690s and last until the 1770s. This is a war that uh, really begins out of a conflict between the Illinois and the Chickasaws. And France absolutely does not want this war. France's policy in the early 1700s is to try to build alliance with as many nations as possible to preserve peace and really have everybody be in one alliance that the French are at the head of. Uh, this is an illusion that they, that they, that they are attempting to create. Um, But they really don't want a war in the Mississippi Valley because at this time, France is trying to connect its colony in the Illinois country with colonies on the Gulf Coast, and they have to have access to the Mississippi River. And the Illinois control the confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi, making them really important, but the Chickasaws also control an important stretch south of the confluence. And so uh, bad relations with either of those groups threatens to cut off French contact from lower Louisiana on the Gulf Coast to upper Louisiana in the Midwest. And um, they try to make peace, but neither um, neither the Illinois or, Chick- or Chickasaws at this time are really very interested in making peace with the other. And particularly, um, it seems like the Illinois um, are waging war against the Chickasaws um, in spite of what uh, it's their French allies are asking them to do. Um, and France eventually gets sucked into this conflict and it has devastating effects for the French empire um, because the, the battles that the French get involved in go really, really badly. They're catastrophic defeats for the French um, and their Indian allies see that and think, hey, maybe France isn't a great military ally after all. And that is one of the key expectations of these alliances, right? That you'll be generous, that you'll be a good military ally, um, that you'll be a good trade partner. And France starts to fall down on those parts of the obligation that's created through these expectations of kinship. And the real problem for France is that it does not have that foundation of kinship to fall back on. It does not have... Uh, personal relationships between colonial officers who are married to Illinois women, married into Illinois families. Um, And so that relationship gets strained. And as a result, after the 1730s, the Illinois in particular are increasingly wary about fighting alongside the French. And that continues uh, into the Seven Years' War. And so this alliance that had helped defeat the Iroquois circa 1700. Half a century later, it's in tatters. And, it, and that happens right on the eve of France's most important colonial war in North America. And I think that really understanding how alliances are supposed to work in theory, and particularly that lack of kinship ties between the French empire, not between French fur traders, between the French empire and the Illinois nation is a big part of that story.
0: Why did British agent Sir Geoffrey Amherst cut off the ammunition supply to Native Americans, and what were the consequences, particularly for the Illinois Alliance during Pontiac's nativist rebellion and, ultimately, Pontiac's death on the streets of Cahokia in 1769?
1: So after the Seven Years' War, Great Britain faces one of the classic problems that all empires have to deal with, and that is that they claim a bunch of land that they have no real control over, right? They... The British, in 1763, signed the Treaty of Paris. France gives them claim to all of its colonies east of the Mississippi River. And the, and there are British officials like Geoffrey Amherst who think, all right, well, we control this now. We can tell these uh, native peoples west of, the mount, west of the Appalachian Mountains what to do. They have to rely on us. And, of course, it is never that simple and many british officials including people like sir william johnson in the british indian department understand that amherst's approach to this is going to be a disaster and um william johnson and his agents um you know advise amherst and say all right we got to build alliances we need to build good relations we need to you know continue to give gifts and amherst says these these indians in the west they don't have any other allies the french are gone and um we're not going to give them a lot of gifts anymore. We're especially not going to give them gunpowder. You know, he said we were just at war with these, with these nations. We don't want them to have gunpowder that they can use to continue to fight. And so he cuts off a lot of the gifts that would have been used to build alliances. And he also in particular cuts off gunpowder. But what Amherst doesn't understand is that gifts have a greater meaning than just the value of the goods themselves. And they they have, symbolic, uh, they have symbolic value, and they demonstrate respect, they demonstrate generosity, and all of those things are part of being a good ally. And so when Amherst cuts off the supply of gunpowder and supplies of other gifts, he signals two things. One is that he didn't respect Indian nations, which he absolutely did not he had very little respect for Native peoples. But the other thing that he signaled is that he was planning to wage a war against Native peoples, and that is not something that he was planning to do. In fact, he, wanted, um, he expected that there would not be war because the French were gone, and he thought Native peoples were just pawns of the French empire. But what he does, or what happens when he cuts off that supply of gunpowder and those other gifts, is he gives Native peoples... Um, reason to join up with this burgeoning alliance um, led by an Ottawa, well, led by a bunch of Native leaders, um, partially by an Ottawa chief named Pontiac, who decided that they had to band together um, as, you know, um, all as Indians uh, to defend themselves from British evasion, British invasion. And this is a new idea that uh, comes out of the 1730s and 1740s in Delaware and Shawnee communities in present-day Pennsylvania. This idea about a pan-Indian identity—you know—the idea that Ottawas and Miamis and Shawnees and Delawares and Illinois and others need to put down their identities as members of those nations and think about themselves as Indians—and they'll all attack, or they're all allied together against um, the British. And this really, this movement by Amherst really gives that uh, that idea some some attractiveness to Indians in the Midwest. And so Pontiac in particular uses his ties to nations throughout the Midwest. He's in Ottawa, but he also has connections with Miami, Shawnees, Delawares, Illinois, and others. And he builds this really substantial alliance that connects uh, members of his nation's alliances, members of the alliances of the Illinois, into a vast network of um, groups that are, Uh, united against the British. And in early 1763, he and his allies nearly succeed in driving Britain out of the Trans-Appalachian West. They they captured nine forts, they threatened half a dozen others, and there are only three British forts west of the Appalachian Mountains that survived the first few months of Pontiac's War. But one of the things that I, I think it's really important to think about is, again, the way that these kinship ties pull in lots of different directions. Because the alliance that Pontiac builds, just like the alliances that it is based on, right? It's based on uh, Ottawa's alliances with Shawnees and Delawares and others, and it's based on Ottawa's alliances with the Illinois, and then it's based on Illinois alliances with Osages and Quapaws and other nations in the in the Mississippi Valley. Is that those alliances are all both inclusive and exclusive? And so there are people who are on the outside of that alliance, even though it promises a pan-Indian unity. Um, There are lots of Indian nations that are not interested in joining with their longtime enemies in this alliance. And the other thing that we want to acknowledge is that once you get to the edges of that alliance, where you have nations that are a couple of degrees removed from, say, Pontiac or a couple of degrees removed from the Shawnees or the Delawares, that what happens is those ties begin to weaken and there are other forces that can pull those nations out of Pontiac's Alliance into a new alliance. And so what William Johnson and um John Stewart and other British British Indian agents do is they use their own kinship ties with nations in eastern North America and they begin to work to slowly pull apart. Um, Pontiac's alliance until um, they make peace with most of the nations in the midcontinent, and eventually Great Britain is able to enter the Illinois country in late 1765. But you mentioned Pontiac's death, and that's an interesting epilogue to this story um, because it emerges out of a conflict that Pontiac has with a Peoria chief named Black Dog. And it's unclear exactly where this conflict starts. But in 1766, Pontiac stabs, does not kill, but he stabs this Peoria chief black dog and Michela Mackinac. It's unclear why. Uh, the sources say this happened, but there's not any motivation um, reported in the sources. But Pontiac, by uh, the 1760s, had also married an Illinois woman. And so he's regularly traveling to the Illinois country. He's traveling down the Wabash River um to visit his wife's family and in the spring of 1769 a relative of Black Dog kills Pontiac in the streets of the French colonial town of Cahokia and this i think is another example of the complicated ways that kinship shape relations between people because Pontiac is a member like he has kinship ties to the nation but at the same time he clearly has antagonistic relations with members of the Illinois as well
0: how did the British garrison at Fort De Deschates and British presence in the Illinois country reshape the political geography of the mid-continent? In addition, can you explain how local conditions and imperial policies undermined the trade and land speculation efforts of George Morgan and his Illinois company?
1: So there are a couple of ways to answer this. Um, first, the arrival of the British uh, into the Illinois country altered how um, well it brought a new understanding of how people used the rivers of the mid-continent um, because up to that point the Mississippi um, of course Mississippi is always important um, and that continues into the British period but before the British arrive in the Midwest, the, the Ohio River is kind of an afterthought people don't really think you know, the Indians and French colonists in the Midcontinent don't really think about the Ohio as being particularly important because the Ohio doesn't go anywhere they want to go. It will take you to British Pennsylvania or it'll take you to Iroquois. And there are very few French colonists or native peoples from the Midwest who want to go to those two places in the early part of the 1700s. <laughs> and so the most important rivers in the Midwest, other than the Mississippi, are the Illinois River and the Wabash River because those go places that the people living there need and want to go. Particularly, they go to um, the native communities in the Great Lakes, and eventually they will connect you to Quebec and Montreal. But when the British show up, they are coming from Pennsylvania, and they are going to the Illinois country. And so the Ohio River increasingly is the most important river in the Midwest, um, it, I should say, except for the, um, the, um, the Mississippi. It's the most important river between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. Um, but the other thing that happens, or part of the reason that happens, is that there is a change in the direction of trade and commerce because um, – the british have a different ge geog- they bring a different geography or geographical understanding to the mid continent right imperialism is about resources extraction empires want to get valuable things from their colonies and bring them back into the empire and it's pretty easy for the french empire to do that in the illinois country and the mississippi river because they just take furs um, you know agricultural products uh barrel oil whatever they're trying to export they put it on a boat they send it down the mississippi river to new orleans it's very easy to to extract those resources from the interior of the continent to new orleans but that's not the case once the goal as the british goal is is to get products from the illinois country back to the atlantic coast because that's where they need to have these things And so it's very easy to get to the Illinois country via the Ohio. But the return trip is not very pleasant going back up the Ohio, particularly if you're trying to transport bulky goods. And the other alternative is to head south, um, which you can do, uh, go through New Orleans and then cross the Gulf of Mexico. Then you get to the Atlantic Ocean and then you have to sail up the coast, which is a very long trip. And so it's not really very easy for... British colonists west of the Appalachian Mountains to get their goods to market. And this becomes a really key obstacle for George Morgan, who um, was a prominent British trader in the Illinois country uh, in the years immediately following the Seven Years' War. He is a representative of a trading firm from Philadelphia, and he goes to the Illinois country because he thinks that he and his partners can get rich in the fur trade. But they mostly end up getting involved in agriculture because they don't have good ties with either native peoples or French traders in the Illinois country, and so they get involved in agriculture. Uh, George Morgan buys a bunch of land, he sets up a distillery, and really has a hard time making any money. He, you know, begins to talk just terribly about. Um the Illinois country refers to it as this accursed country. Like he's really not happy out there. And it's largely because he and his partners don't understand the way the rivers work. They don't understand the geography. And so they have problems getting that uh getting those products back to market in um the eastern uh part of the British colonies. Now the land speculation part of this story is is just a total mess. And it's also I, I find it very amusing um how big of a mess this is. Um so the Uh, part of the story is the proclamation line of 1763, right? Britain bans its colonists from crossing the Appalachian mountains, Mm -hmm. which doesn't really stop the colonists from moving, but it stops speculators from being able to profit off of those lands, right? Because if you just want to go move into the West and set up a homestead or whatever, you don't really need official approval from the empire. But if you're going to register deeds, sell it, whatever you do need that official approval um but the illinois country is one place where that policy is not in force because britain considered a european colony not part of indian country right because there are this long-standing french colony so they were happy for some french col- or, sorry some british colonists to buy that that land from french colonists and so morgan goes out there again he's Got these connections to this trading group in Pennsylvania, these land speculators, including William Franklin, the son of Benjamin Franklin, who's also governor of New Jersey. Um, And so he starts buying up land in the Illinois country. There's not really a market for it, though, because there aren't many British colonists who want to travel all the way into the midcontinent. And the other thing that I think is really funny is that his compatriots uh, decide that this is not going to be a successful endeavor. Um, And so they stop pushing for um, more investment in this idea of a colony in the Illinois country, and they decide they're instead going to push the Vandalia colony, which is mostly in present-day West Virginia. But they don't tell George Morgan that they've made this decision. Yeah, I recall that. (laughs) Right, and so George Morgan's still out there trying to buy as much land as he can, and his partners have already moved on to other things and have not bothered to tell him that that's the case. <laughs> so uh, this, needless to say, this uh, this endeavor does not work out very well for Morgan and his partners.
0: Can you elucidate, elucidate the kinship ties and mediation strategies that the Leclerc Chateau fur trade family employed? with Chief Pauhuska and, and against Clermont, as well as the matrilocal local Osage peoples. In addition, how does your account of the founding of St. Louis differ from Chateau's account, August Chateau's account?
1: So in many respects, Auguste Chateau's account of the founding of St. Louis is both a self-serving account of the city's earliest years and also part of a genre of stories that venerate colonizers who, you know, go out and carve civilization out of the wilderness or whatever, right? And it's really a – it's a document that's invested in it in creating its own myth about the origins of St. Louis and about Chouteau's role in that, in that story. Um, so Chateau was about 13 years old at the time St. Louis was founded, but he presents himself as being a key partner in the founding of the city along with his stepfather Pierre Leclerc. And he says that Leclerc looked all over the region and looked for the perfect place to establish his new trading outpost. And then he finds this perfect spot on this bluff. And he says, it's going to be amazing. It's got this, you know, it's a beautiful site. It's right in the middle of all of these, um, uh, it's right in the middle of the, the action, you know, is it's centrally located, it's going to be great. And so then he sends Auguste chateau, uh, to the side of Louisiana, or I'm sorry, to the side of St. Louis and, um, Chateau oversees the team of men who cut down the trees, clear land, et cetera, to make space for this new city. Um, You know, the idea that there's this 13 year old boy who's the boss of this team of, Mm -hmm. uh, of men who are undertaking this, this endeavor. Right. Um, And, but so it's very much a document that's about myth making. And I think that we can put that document in context um, if we think about why it was written. and and, so it's, it's prob- it was probably written in 1804. Um, that's the, that's the, it's not dated, but that's, that's, um, that seems to be the case. That it was probably written in 1804, right as the U.S. was about to take possession of Louisiana after the Louisiana Purchase. And so it seems like he's writing this document with an American audience in mind. Right? He's setting himself up as the most important person in Louisiana, or at least in upper Louisiana, so the U.S. will see him as being the guy. Right, That if they want a local contact, the person that they want is Choteau. And so that's what that's what is up to in the document, I think. But in many ways, what I think is most interesting about the document are parts of the story that are secondary to Choteau's main interest. And one thing that he does is he spends quite a bit of time talking about the career of Louis de Saint-Ange, who's a veteran of the French regime who becomes an official in Spanish Upper Louisiana. Uh, In the 1760s and early 1770s. And it's not clear why that part of the story is there unless you know something about Saint-Ange. Because he's a crucial figure in the story of the early years of the Spanish regime in Louisiana. But he was also a boarder in the Leclerc Chateau home during the last years of his life. And so knowing that, we can see that Chateau isn't just talking about some random guy. You know, you're reading the thing. If you don't know it, you're like, why Why is he spending several pages talking about this person that he's not really introduced or anything? But then you realize, oh, he's talking about someone whose connections in the Spanish Empire to the local French community, are really important for the Chateaus in the 1760s because the Chateaus are newcomers. They have, uh, Leclerc and Chateau um, had not been to Upper Louisiana before 1763. They go from New Orleans, where they had lived, to the Midwest and start trading. And St. Ange is a crucial part of integrating them into these existing trade networks and social networks in the Midcontinent. But the other thing that Chateau talks about, I think is really important, is that he tells a story about a group of Missouri Indians who visit the town in its first days. And he talks about how they wanted to move in next to St. Louis. And he says, oh, you know, Leclerc, those are really smart negotiator. And so he convinces the Missourias that St. Louis should be uh, a town that's open for anyone to come and trade. And he says uh, that Leclerc convinces them that if the Missouri is moved to St. Louis, it's going to put them at risk because they'll be, they'll be out in the open and kind of in this exposed place where it'll be easy for their enemies to attack them. And Chouteau tells this as evidence of Leclerc's brilliance, right? That he's this really skilled negotiator. Like It's all part of the same kind of foundation myth of, of Leclerc and the Chateau family, Um. But if we take a different look at this, we can see that what Native peoples are trying to do is to turn Leclerc and Choteau, um and St. Louis more generally into allies, and that they're trying to use the resources that Leclerc and Chouteau bring um, for their own purposes. And so the Missourias aren't successful in establishing this relationship, but the much more powerful Osages actually are. And they develop a relationship with the Chouteau family and with St. Louis that really enhances their power in the Midwest during the the late 1700s. And so that gets us to Paul Huska. So Paul Huska was the brother of Claremont, who was one of the two chiefs of the Osage nation during the 1780s and 1790s. The Osages have two chiefs um, to... Put this very simply: There's one that's a war chief and one that's a peace chief. One that handles outside, you know, relations with outside groups, and one that handles things inside the nation. So Claremont's one of these chiefs, but Claremont dies, and the title passes to his younger son, or sorry, to his son, uh, who's a young boy at this time, and his name's also Claremont. It's not confusing at all. (laughs) Um, But so Paul Huska is the brother of the older Claremont, and he becomes regent for the young Claremont. But during the mid-1790s, he uses that position, and especially his relationship with the Choteaus, to get the Spanish Empire to recognize him and not Claremont as the chief of the Osages. And this recognition doesn't matter much by itself. right? Osage chiefs aren't selected by Spain. But what it does do is it gives Paul Huska access to a lot of resources. It gets him access to gifts from the Spanish empire. It gives him connections to people like the governor of Louisiana, um, who he can tell what's going on in, in his nation, what's going on with other people and really try to, you know, craft the narrative that serves him, get resources that he can use to his own benefit. And that allows him to solidify support within the Osage nation. And so Paul Huska Using these ties is able to take over the role of chief of the Osage Nation, and he really isolates Claremont, who then moves away from the main part of the Osage Nation down to the Arkansas River Valley with a, with a group of supporters. And then for the rest of the 1790s, Auguste Chateau, his brother Pierre, um, used those ties to Paul Huska to build their own you know, fur trading empire in Spanish Louisiana, and they gained a lot of political influence because they are seen as the people who can really um, smooth things over with the Osages when that's necessary.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Augusta's uh, uh, brother, Pierre Chouteau, who you mentioned. How did he become the U.S. Indian agent for Louisiana Territory and co-founder, along with William Clark, of the Missouri Fur Company, until its dissolution in 1814. And what role did Chateau friend William Henry Harrison play in U.S. imperial expansion?
1: So part of this story, to understand it, we need to deal with some diplomatic stuff very quickly. Um, And so in 1803 – well, let me start before that. In 1800, uh, France asked Spain to give Louisiana back – in 1762, Spain and France had signed a treaty giving the western part of Louisiana to Spain. It's 1800, Napoleon wants it back. 1803, the U.S. purchases this claim from, uh, to Louisiana from France. And then in 1804, it sent agents to take possession of the colony. Um, But what is happening um, in those months between 1803, when the word of the Purchase gets to the Midwest, and 1804, when the U.S. agents actually show up, is that the governor of Indiana territory, which at that point included Indiana, Illinois, um, parts of Michigan, um, Minnesota, and Wisconsin also, right? It's this vast area that is ostensibly under the control of a single governor, and that governor is William Henry Harrison. But Indiana Territory borders Spanish Upper Louisiana. And because of that, Harrison had developed a pretty good relationship with the, governor of up, the lieutenant governor of Upper Louisiana, who, surprise, surprise, was also a close friend of the Chateau family. And so William Henry Harrison writes to the go, lieutenant governor uh, in St. Louis in late 1803 and says, hey, um, I just got word that the U.S. has bought this territory from France. Um, you know, France hasn't shown up and taken possession of it yet. It's still being administered by Spanish officials. Um, and so he's writing to the Spanish Lieutenant Governor. He says, Hey, you know, I just got word that this is happening. And this is probably going to give me an opportunity, uh, to help any of your friends. If you have people who, you know, I should be taking consideration of. And so the Lieutenant Governor then sends a list of people that it's good. That would be good for Harrison to know, including the Choteaux. And then pretty soon, William Henry Harrison was writing letters back to Jefferson, back to others in the East, saying, hey, the Chateaus are great. They know all of this stuff about the stuff about Louisiana. They've got great relations with the Osages, who are really important. And he says, these guys are going to be really fantastic allies. And so even before the U.S. shows up, there is word about the Chateaus getting into kind of the minds of these you know, uh, imperial officials about, oh, well, the Chateaus are the people we need to build alliances with. And so later that year, um, when the U.S. appoints an Indian agent for uh, Upper Louisiana, the person that they choose is Pierre Chateau. Um, that position is later limited to only being uh, connected to the Osages, but it's still a really important position. And this friendship with William Henry Harrison, I think, is crucial to understanding the role of the Chateau brothers in the U.S. Empire in the first part of the 1800s more generally. Because William Henry Harrison is connected to most of the important Americans in the West at that point, he's connect. He's friends with William Clark. He's friends with Meriwether Lewis. He's friends with James Wilkinson, who becomes the first governor of uh, Louisiana Territory, and he makes all of these intratu- introductions for the Chouteau brothers. And this leads to the to the uh, thing you suggested about the creation of the Missouri Fur Company um, at the later part of the first decade of the eighteen hundreds, and so. This is really a merger of American and French or Francophone um, commercial interests in the Midwest. And so it includes members of the Chateau family. It includes William Clark. It includes Meriwether Lewis's brother and a bunch of others, um, both Americans and Francophone people in this one company, the Missouri Fur Company. And this is not only a merger of these different groups of people, but it's also a merger of government business and private enterprise. It, in a lot of ways, it continues the kind of relationships that the Chateaus had built with the Spanish Empire in the 1780s and 1790s. Right, that They're doing work for the Spanish Empire, but they're also making a lot of money for themselves. And that is the same kind of idea of the Missouri Fur Company. Um and the idea is that everybody who gets involved with this company is going to get rich um, while also doing some work for the United States. But this endeavor ends up being really frustrating for most people involved. They don't really have great um uh experiences trying to trade farther up the Missouri River. The Chouteaus' experience really is mostly limited to the Osage Nation, uh, which is in present-day Missouri and down into Arkansas um, and eastern uh what's now eastern Oklahoma. And so they're not, they don't really have great ties farther up the Missouri River. And that's really where they're trying to, trying to make a fortune with the Missouri Fur Company. And so this ends up being a really frustrating endeavor, and it eventually dissolves during the War of 1812. But I think what we can see with the um, Missouri Fur Company is the way that these public and personal interests get combined, and also the importance of personal relationships in facilitating both private endeavors and the functions of the empire.
0: What were the aims and results of Secretary of War Henry Knox's civilization policy, especially after William Clark's and Pierre Chateau's 1808 Fire Prairie Treaty? Further, how did the Chateau brothers profit from the transition to a removal ideology? And why did the brothers and how did the brothers shield friends and kin by negotiating the establishment of an 1825, what was described um, by a primary source in your book as half-breed reservation?
1: So Henry Knox is the first Secretary of War of the United States under uh, George Washington, and he hashes out the ideas that become the basics of civilization policy during the late 1780s. And the goal of civilization policy is really to avoid the expense of war while still expanding the American empire. Um, Now, of course, during the 1780s, it's still an open question whether the U.S. actually could win wars against Indian nations or not. Um, the American Revolution in the West had generally not gone well for the United States. Shawnees, Delawares, Miamis, and others had won most of the the conflicts during the 1780s 1770s and into the 1780s. And so it's unclear whether the U.S. really can win these conflicts. And then, of course, a couple of years later in the 1790s, those nations also defeat two different U.S. armies, including nearly annihilating Arthur St. Clair's uh, troops in 1791. And so the U.S. Doesn't want, to, doesn't want to get involved with that kind of thing. They specifically want to avoid those kind of wars. They're expensive. They're dangerous. They're costly. And so Henry Knox come up, comes up with a plan that hopes to expand the U.S. empire while um, not having to undertake those risks and those expenses. And so he wants to uh, recognize Indian land rights. Um, but also to purchase land rather than seize it through force. He wants to train Indians in Euro-American agriculture and animal husbandry. And he thinks that he'll be able to impart what he says is a love for exclusive property uh, among native Americans. And then they will be willing to sell their land, their extra land he thinks to the United States. And there are also cultural components to this, right? He, uh, he wants native peoples to, convert to Christianity. He wants them to change gender roles, especially making men, not women, responsible for farming. Um, And so in general, civilization policy is this idea that by changing Native American society, by changing Native American culture, um, Native peoples will decide that they need less land, and then they will sell the extra land to the United States. But that's not really what happens. um, Because Native peoples, of course, are not just the pawns of empire, right? They have their own interests, they have their own ambitions, their own ideas about things. And so they take the parts of civilization policy that they think are beneficial, particularly the economic components. And so when U.S. agents show up and they bring, say, plows, uh, Native people think, oh, well, this is, uh, is going to help us grow these crops that we've grown for you know a thousand years easier. Great. Um, they're not as much interested in converting to Christianity. There's not as much interested in changing gender roles. So they take the parts of civilization policy that they want and leave the rest behind. But the other thing that happens is they know the value of their land, right? And the idea that they are going to, uh, say, oh, well, all of a sudden we have a bunch of extra land because we've changed our economy. That does not happen. And so that produces a tension in civilization policy. Because the goal was always to weaken Indian nations and to convince Native peoples to sell their land. And so the question is, well, do they follow through on civilization policy as, um, you know, as a method of um, changing Native peoples, or do they really want to emphasize this idea about getting land? And during the early 1800s, Thomas Jefferson is pretty certain about which of these impulses is more important his interest is in acquiring as much land as possible. And so he writes this letter to William Henry Harrison and says, all right, you got to get as much land as you possibly can, uh, sign all the treaties you can, get as, get people to sign this over. And he says, do what you have to, to get control of this. He says, if you, that requires getting Indian leaders into debt and then using that debt as a leverage, uh, as, as leverage uh, to force land sales, do that. Do what you need to, to get this land. And this becomes a, uh, crucial part of Jefferson's vision for the Louisiana Purchase as well. Um, because Jefferson thinks that the Louisiana Purchase is going to provide territory, provide land for the U.S. to relocate eastern Indians from west of the Appalachian Mountains into the Trans-Mississippi West. That there are Indians in the Midwest, there are Indians in the South, that he wants to to push west, to make them go um, Uh, across the Mississippi River. And he writes to James Wilkinson right around the time the Louisiana Purchase, and he says that depopulation must precede the transfer of Indians. And what he means is that the U.S. had to acquire trans-Mississippi lands from nations like the Osages to create space for removed Eastern Indians. And so in 1808, uh, William Clark negotiates a treaty, the first, uh, yeah, the first treaty between the U.S. and the Osage Nation. And Uh, This is an important step in achieving Jefferson's goal, uh, because the treaty states that the Osages are going to cede about 50,000 square miles of land in present Arkansas and Missouri to the United States. The problem is that that is not what the Osages think the treaty says. The Osage leaders who negotiated the treaty, they say, no, we're not giving up title of this land. We are... uh, using it as we're using this land as a sign of alliance and we're allowing Americans to hunt on this land, right? That you, but you can't, you don't own it, right? We're just, we're using this as a sign of goodwill, right? That we're letting you use part of our hunting grounds as your own. Um, and so, um, Meriwether Lewis, who at that point is the governor of Louisiana territory. He goes to Pierre Chateau and he says, okay, you got to go back and, um, make sure that everything gets smoothed over with this. So Pierre Chouteau goes back to the Osage nation and um, he comes with the word from Meriwether Lewis, that this is the only deal on the table and that the Osages have to sign it or they're going they're just going to lose their land anyway. Um, and it's really a, a hard edge negotiation tactic that Lewis through Chouteau uses to get, to get control of this land. Um, and it sets off a, a, a slowish transition of the Choteaux away from really being invested in the fur trade to being more invested in the land business. Uh, because the Choteaux understand that the, that the economy of the uh, of Louisiana purchase, or the uh, economy of upper Louisiana is changing, and that the fur trade in the Midwest is, is losing its value But what is not losing its value and what's even increasing in value as more and more Americans move across the Mississippi River is land. And so the Chateaus start facilitating these land sales. Uh, Pierre Chateau is often a negotiator in relation and translator in negotiations with the Osage Nation. Auguste Chateau takes a position after the War of 1812 as a negotiator for the United States, and their relatives occupy. Uh, other positions, um, similar positions in the the treaty process. And they find ways to make money all throughout this process. The Chateaus are getting money hand over fist as they negotiate these treaties. But the this culminates in a lot of ways in the 1825 treaty that the Osages signed with the United States. And there's an and, and again, this is a massive cession of land uh, in what is now Indian territory, or what uh, became Indian Territory to the United States, and again, I think this is a precursor to rem- to removal. It's a prerequisite for removal is to acquire this land. But the chateaus do something interesting, which is that they negotiate um, for about forty of their relatives and the relatives of some other traders um, to get personal allotments um, in land that is designated for "quote unquote" half-breeds, and. Part of this, I think, is taking advantage of the racial ideas that are developing in the early 1800s, Um, and the U.S. thinks, oh, well, you know, these these mixed-race people, they can eventually integrate into U.S. society, um, and so we're going to set them aside from the rest of the Osage Nation. But if you look at who is getting land in the treaty, it's clear that it's actually not about, um, you know, it's not about blood quantum who is getting this, you know, it's not actually um about them being mixed race it's not about if they've converted to christianity it's not about if they speak english the thing that really matters is that they have is that almost all of the people in the uh, who are included in these designations are friends or relatives of the choteau family and so it seems that what's happening is the choteaus are identifying these people uh, as who are their friends and relatives as people who deserve to get, you know, special dispensation and special allotments of land, um, even while the rest of the Osage Nation is being moved, and and just to make this point a little um, a little stronger, is that there are lots of mixed race Osages. There are lots of uh, Osages who've been, or there there's some number of Osages who've converted to Christianity, um, who are not included in this, right? Like It's not like everyone in the Osage Nation whose mixed race gets one of these allotments. It's just the people who have connections to the Chateaus or other traders.
0: Can you briefly el- elaborate on the kinship ties used, utilized by Native Americans in Indian territory for reconstruction of their communities? And you already kind of alluded to this, but in the final analysis, how did kinship ties bind the Chateau family to US commerce and imperialism?
1: So the, that Indian territory part of the story is, is I think, really interesting. Um, and it's something, again, that comes out of a surprise that I found uh, when I was researching this project. Um, and, and I hope um, I'll have more time to investigate it uh, in the future. Um, uh, but it does seem that kinship ties and existing alliances do shape the geography of Indian territory. And I came across this idea, um, I was sitting in the Beinecke Library at Yale, um, I don't know, seven years ago probably one summer, uh, reading through their various Western documents. And I was reading the journal of this um, uh, federal surveyor in Indian Territory, a guy named Washington Hood, and he's accompanying a group of Windot chiefs uh, into Indian Territory. And what they are doing is they're looking for land that the Windots are going to Claim as their reservation uh, or their, uh, you know, um, their reserved land in exchange for land that they're giving up in the in the Midwest. And Hood says that he thinks that if the Wendats can move in next to the Shawnees and Delawares, that they'll be satisfied with the land that they are, that they can acquire. But the Shawnees and Delawares are also the Wendats' longtime neighbors in present day Ohio, um, and so it. It seemed from that uh, from that bit of evidence that Native peoples are specifically thinking like, okay, who do I want to live next to? And the people they want to li- live next to are their longtime allies. And there are also uh, a couple of maps of Indian territory that show the boundaries of all the nations and where they were located. And I started looking at that and realized that the nations that are living next to one another are nations that had been allied in many cases since the 1600s, if not before. And so – you have Illinois living next to Miami's, living next to Ottawa's, living next to um, whoever else, right? And so they're all making these decisions, like, all right, if we're going to move to this, you know, strange land, we want to be next to people who, um, uh, who we're already have good relations with. And the other thing that happens is that in the case of the Illinois and the Miami's, these are people who split. Uh, into two separate nations, you know, about six, 1600 or so. Um, and in the early 1800s into the mid-1800s, they begin to reconstitute the nation um, that had split with, you know, 250 years earlier. And so that begins in the 1830s when Peorias and Kaskaskias agree to live on the same land for the first time, probably since the end of the 1600s. And in the 1850s, Peorias... Uh, Kaskaskias and two groups of miami's uh, agree to constitute the Peoria tribe of Indians, which in many ways I think um, is a uh, is a resurrection of this much older relationship from you know pre sixteen hundred and so I think that I think that these kinship ties and these alliances between these different Indian nations is a crucial part of shaping the early history of Indian territory um, and so one thing I wanted to highlight was, again, how the, you know, the long arc of these kinship networks and the long arc of these alliances. And that's true also for, um, for European and Euro, Euro-American colonists, um, because these, the persistence of these kinship networks is also very much a factor in St. Louis and very much a factor in the expansion of the U.S. empire. And there are lots of examples that we could talk about in that, in that context but one thing that I think is really important is the merger of the Chateau fur trading business with the the American Fur Company of John Jacob Astor in the eighteen uh, the, the mid eighteen hundreds and early to mid eighteen hundreds, and that happens because of a marriage between John Jacob Astor's right hand man, a guy named Ramsey Crooks, and the niece of one of the Chateau brothers, um, and. So um this marriage I think forms the basis of a new uh, fur trading business in the in the Midwest and it's representative of a broader range of alliances that connect the established francophone elite of St. Louis to more recently arrived Americans. But these stories about the Chateau family and its connections to American, you know, merchants and Fur barons and that kind of thing, and also the story of Indian territory gives, I think, those two things together illustrate one of the central themes of the book, which is that the U.S. empire takes its form because of these much older histories. The relationships that shape Indian territory date back centuries, and those that define the early U.S. empire go back at least decades. And so we can't understand what happens in the 1830s and 40s if we don't take that long view. This process of building an American empire in the West doesn't begin. In 1803, with the Louisiana Purchase, the purchase creates a new context, but the U.S. still has to contend with this longer story, and that's, in short, that's how I ended up writing a book that covers 800 years, is trying to tell this, you know, this long, rich history of these, um, of these social networks and these alliances and these relationships.
0: So I have actually one final question. What's next for you? Are you going on vacation? Do you have another project in mind?
1: <laughs> so I am hoping to uh, uh, to take a slight break mm-hmm. uh, once the semester wraps up here, uh, you know, and in, in bask in the satisfaction of having completed this book. <laughs> but I am moving on uh, soon to, uh, to a new project, and, and it really does pick up. Uh, some of these threads that I feel like I left, um, uh, I left off with at the end of, uh, of at the end of the book, or in the later part of the book. And so the the new project is going to be a history of the Louisiana Purchase um, that picks up after the treaty is signed in 1803, and really tackles the question of how does the U.S. exert uh, and assert authority over um, this vast region that it has purchased a claim to and in in the middle of north america and so I, i'm much more interested again in the process of how the empires function how does the empire uh relate to um uh to native peoples to francophone colonists to all of these groups that are already living in the region and how does that shape the the history of the louisiana purchase and how does it affect the ability of the u.s to establish authority? In the trans-mississippi west
0: interesting well we look forward to that and hope you remember the new books network for that one as well yeah definitely all right everyone this is ryan tripp the book is by the way masters of the middle waters indian nations and colonial ambitions along the mississippi by uh, jacob lee he's an assistant professor of history at penn state university out earlier this year by published by harvard university press So again, this is Ryan Tripp on behalf of Jacob, the New Books Network. This has been a joint production of the History Channel and Native American Studies Channel. Please tune in next time.